Hello, everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven-Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Picard & Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app to make sure you're getting updated with future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. It's where I make my home in the ABA. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org slash litigation. It's almost a truism that building a niche practice is one of the best ways to develop a profitable law practice. Yet, it's a lesson we never seem to tire of forgetting. While it can be enticing to think that we can be a lawyer for every client facing all legal situations, it can put us in a tricky ethical dilemma and may in fact not be the best way to market our practice. So to discuss the issue of building a niche practice, I'm happy to welcome Matthew Zorn to the show. Matt is a partner at Yetter Coleman, where he represents plaintiffs and defendants in a variety of commercial litigation matters, with an emphasis on patent and regulatory litigation in federal and state trial and appellate courts. He received his JD from Columbia Law School with honors and served as clerk to the Honorable Rodney Gilstrap of the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Texas. Recognized as an authority in the federal regulatory scheme relating to cannabis research and the Controlled Substances Act, he has published several articles ranging from IP issues to federal procedure and is one of the lead attorneys who pushed back on the Texas smokable hemp ban. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's, it's good to be here. Well, I understand that uh, you've been on the forefront of litigation relating to the use of cannabis and psychedelics. Um, tell us a little bit about your niche practice. Uh, sure. Um, I've been doing this now for a little over three years, and I've, I've been litigating at the federal level involving uh, regulations of represented researchers, patients, companies, and I've done like the Texas smokable hemp ban was at the state level. Um, and so my practice generally relates to kind of the rule, the rules of the game in this area. I'm a commercial litigator outside of uh, cannabis and psychedelics regulation, but in the cannabis and psychedelics space, I'm mostly focused on uh, what, are, what are the rules of the road? What rules do you have to follow to research? To what kind of products can you sell? And then also trying to open up access in a smart way. And, and so what, what types of clients are you representing right now? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, right now I'm representing, um, I, I have some patients I'm representing. I, I very well might take on a, a representation involving a federal government worker. So, so I represent all, all types of clients. I represented a, a company in the smokable hemp ban. So it's really not, you know, it, it's basically any type of client you can think of. Um, it, it really is kind of more issue focused as opposed to client focused. Got it. And what is the the typical argument for, you know, like an individual client? I mean, I've seen articles where it's typically folks where like they have cancer and they and they, and they believe that the use of psychedelics and certainly cannabis uh, will help them kind of get through their treatment. Is that is that the type of thing that we're talking about here? Yeah, I think that's exactly the type of thing we're talking about. Um, I mean, I, I like worthy clients with worthy causes. So my first case was a pro bono case for a researcher um, who's trying to research cannabis to help veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder. I, I'm currently representing a, a clinic treating cancer patients and wanting to treat them, those patients, or rather wanting to allow 
access to psilocybin um, for end-of-life treatment, which is the, the clinical evidence, at least the preliminary clinical evidence, has shown strong results. And so I, I do kind of focus on what I would consider to be what I would call an edge case. Um, I like cases that kind of present sort of novel, difficult issues, but also kind of call into question, like, well, why is it that a cancer patient can't get access to a therapy that the FDA has designated as a breakthrough therapy? And and I think when you sort of take these edge cases, it focuses on deeper questions about why is the regulatory scheme the way it is? Got it. And so I think people would be very interested in hearing kind of how you got into this practice area. You know, a lot of people love to push the edges. And, you know, I think, you know, people say, you know, I I got into the law because I wanted to change the world. I wanted to, you know, change the way the government is. So how did you get into this specific uh, practice area? Well, so I got into this practice area. I'll, I'll give you the kind of the medium version of the story, which is I had a personal kind of connection to this work. And what kind of drew that out of me was um, I went to South by Southwest in 2019 and I met a researcher named Dr. Sue Sisley. She wanted to research cannabis to treat veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder. And she was able to conduct a phase two clinical trial, but she wasn't able to source that trial with a real world cannabis that's being used around the country. And so she used the cannabis that was being sourced by, at the time, it was the only source of cannabis in the United States, which was uh, in University of Mississippi. And it, it's just not, it's bad quality. Um, and so it's kind of a garbage in, garbage out model. And this is the cannabis that's been used for 50 years of federally approved research. And so she was very much a self-starter and she kind of took the initiative and filed an application to grow cannabis herself, you know, after the Obama administration solicited these applications to expand the program, she sort of took the bulls by the horns and said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do this myself. And what happened was, is the federal government wouldn't let her, her application got put into this purgatory for two and a half years and along with other folks applications. But, you know, Dr. Sisley's story was particularly um, compelling because she she was trying to grow for her own FDA approved clinical trials. And so, you know, to, to the listeners of the podcast, I, I would urge you the next time you hear federal officials saying we need more research to understand that there's plenty of research. There's been 50 years of, of research involving cannabis. Um, there just haven't been any FDA approved clinical trials that have gone through phase ones, two and three that that's the only type of research that hasn't been done. There's been thousands of studies and trials and other countries and whatnot. But the reason that that hadn't been done in the United States was because there was this, essentially these regulatory barriers to be able to conduct those clinical trials. And there there are other issues, but that was one of the main ones. And I just got, I was just infuriated. And, you know, at that point I was probably a sixth or seventh year lawyer. Um, I had finished a clerkship for Judge Rodney Gilstrap in the Eastern District of Texas. And I was confident enough in my skills that I would be able to represent her pro bono. And so that was that was the first sort of matter I took and it all kind of grew from there. I think you mentioned you had kind of a personal interest in this. It seems to me, you know, when we're talking about building a niche practice, that's probably some pretty good advice, which is 
you know, I think a lot of people kind of think, well, you know, I, I need to build in this practice, but I don't know what it should be. Um, but I think a lot of us have kind of a personal interest in a substantive area of the law, no matter what it is. It's just a matter of us having to go and follow it. So it, it sounded like you just followed kind of your interest, like you had a personal story that kind of made you seek out this opportunity. I, I think that's right. And I think it's, I'm not going to say you can't build a niche practice without having a personal interest. What I will say, however, is you know, when the chips are down or when sort of your fuel's running on empty, you're going to need to tap some reservoir of sort of desire or drive. And a lot of times, you know, the the personal interest is kind of what, what takes you that extra mile. It's what keeps you up at two in the morning, sort of polishing off an appellate brief. It, it certainly wasn't the money in this case. I mean, I represented Dr. Cicely Pro Bono and I've had paid, I, I, I am now paid to represent clients in this space, but you know, sometimes, I mean, I, I still look at the right pro bono engagement because I care about it and I get a lot of, you know, I get a lot of rewards, uh, not just the personal, but you know, I've got, I've been able to hone my skills. I've argued a number of appeals at this point, but I think having the personal connection is kind of the thing that keeps you going when when it isn't all the usual stuff like you know the money and the prestige and and all that because you know there really wasn't any money or prestige when I first first got into this, right? And and so I guess the the next question that follows would be so how did you con- convince your law firm to take on this client pro bono and and kind of allow you to continue working in this area considering the fact that. Sometimes you get paid, sometimes you don't. Certainly the first client was pro bono. So how did you approach your firm and convince them to to take on this practice area? Yeah, so I, I think, that, and this is a great question. I mean, this this perhaps was the most difficult part of the, the, the task because, uh, you know, our, our firm hadn't done anything relating to cannabis or controlled substances. And this was a little bit out of left field, but I didn't present it as a cannabis or controlled substances case. I presented it as a, an administrative law case involving a researcher who was trying to do all the right things. And the government was doing wrong by her. And, you know, I, I, I kind of made, you know, we had a worthy client, we had a worthy cause and I felt like she needed someone of our firm's caliber to sort of help her out with the problem. You know, I didn't pitch it as a change the world project. It, it, it honestly wasn't a change the world project, at least not initially. And, you know, our firm is very receptive. You know, the, the beneficiaries of this is, is research, it's science, it's veterans. And, you know, honestly, at the end of the day, it wasn't even a pro-cannabis or anti-cannabis or it was kind of a neutral project it was we want to help research move along so i think a lot of what this practice that i've learned and i'm still learning and it's not just sort of in court or in front of a jury but also kind of with your your colleagues and with your firm and with your partners is trying to meet people where they are and trying to find the common ground and so when it came to pitching this case it was trying to meet at the time sort of my bosses where they were as far as you know what values was was this case promoting that was consistent with those of the firm and you know to this day i think it was consistent with those of the firm but and and those values were sort of research and you know again my client she was doing all the right things um she just couldn't the, the government was was not not doing right by her. So I think once when you make the pitch in those terms, I think it's a lot easier to swallow. Whereas if you come in with some sort of 
you know, if you were to say something like, you know, legalize it campaign or whatnot, that maybe that would have been a more difficult sell. Yeah, for sure. Because it, it is a, if you framed it that way, that's a more controversial way to kind of think about it that, well, we, we just, yeah, we, we should legalize drugs. We should legalize psychedelics, you know, for these patients or maybe for everyone. Law firm may not have been as reception, receptive as the way that, that you framed it. Um, but did you get any pushback concerning kind of the the, the subject area or, or were they pretty much just on board because of the, you know, the, the client and, and, and the possibilities here? I got no pushback. None. Wow. So I think that uh, kind of one of the lessons that I, I think we all can learn here in terms of, you know, building your practice with this niche, a uh, substantive area is that from interviews that I've, I've read with you, you don't, typically market your practice as a psychedelics practice you have a you know a, you market your practice more broadly which is kind of litigation focus you have this niche practice to uh, i don't know get uh, publicity notoriety etc but at the end of the day you're you're a litigator and um you know you're able to help all sorts of clients not just uh, these clients in in this uh, niche practice area right uh, ab- absolutely. I'm, I'm a litigator first. Um, I'm sort of classically trained in the nuts and bolts of, you know, discovery and writing motion practice, arguing motions. And, you know, I'd like to think I'm a pretty good litigator. Um, I don't, I don't, I haven't been able to do the things I'm doing in, in this sort of niche area of psychedelics and cannabis without sort of tapping into my general litigator skills, my intuition, my ability to sort of weave case law and, the, the the reason I, you know, hesitate to call myself a cannabis and psychedelics lawyer is first, it's not really a substantive area of law. It's kind of the intersection of a, a few different areas of law, including administrative law. I do IP litigation, and that that's that's becoming a, a fairly popular topic in the space. But it, it's kind of a combination or hybrid or mutt of sorts right now um and so that's that's the first reason but but the second reason is like i am trained to help clients with problems with the legal system and it just so happens that i have taken on a lot of case more cases in this area perhaps at the federal level than any, anyone but the reason i do that is because these are different difficult novel issues and i have you know, a lot of substantive expertise in, in the relevant statutes and the law and, and thoughts. But but all of that kind of comes out of my general training, which, you know, as good of a controlled substance as a litigator, I'm probably a better IP litigator. If you had to push comes to shove, I mean, I'm more more comfortable roaming around a patent, perhaps. But but yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't like I and, and it makes me a better you know, what I do in this niche practice, it makes me better to have a kind of another sort of pillar of my practice. I think that's another important thing is, um, sure, you can become, you, you know, you can become very successful being focused on a niche, but sometimes it gives you kind of a one foot out, one foot in posture allows you to kind of check yourself sometimes and make sure you're not too far in. And and I, I, I kind of like that. And I, I, plan on maintaining that. I mean, I don't plan on going full time into this. I like, I like my contract cases. I like my patent cases. I like my other cases. Ultimately, again, I want to get back to something I said earlier, which is, you know, it's about meeting people where they are. And so it's important, you know, that that's the secret, I think, to winning most cases, whether it's with a judge or a jury, it's trying to bring, 
take your client's cause and meeting to someone where they are. And with controlled substances, a lot of people aren't there yet. I mean, they're really, really not there yet. And so meeting people where they are, a lot of times involves kind of removing yourself. And that's when I when I do my normal for general lit, it, it kind of keeps me in check as far as where where my head is at of, hey, you know, that thing I was doing before, like, you know, the rest of the world isn't quite there yet. So how does that translate into trial strategy or appellate court strategy where you might have judges who are not comfortable, you know, with, with this issue and, and under kind of can understand where the government may be coming from and, and, uh, treading lightly, um, in this area. So how, how do you meet, you know, an appellate court judge, for example, where they are and how do you, what's the strategy to kind of convince them, um, to see it your way or your client's way? Well, (laughs) it's a good question because I haven't really succeeded in that so far, but well, I've had, I've had varying success. Um, but I try to go really narrow, just just super narrow and and really, you know, just be incremental about things. And and it's it's a constant struggle because, you know, your clients, you you want to give them full relief, but you have to understand that the court system isn't designed to isn't really designed to change the world. It's designed to solve a dispute, usually in the most narrow way possible. It's starting with how you frame your case. And honestly, it's not always intuitive. And what I mean by that is Sometimes you've got a case with really kind of heart pulling circumstances and that's the story you want to tell. But at the end of the day, it's really like just a dry administrative law case. It might actually be more effective to to pitch the case as a dry administrative law case. Why? Because then you kind of take the focus off the controlled substances aspect of it and it just becomes more of a technical legal issue. And so I am to some extent frustrated with some of the judges I've appeared before because they just didn't seem to get it. I think, you know, part of that's my fault as the lawyer, you know, it's my job to frame the case, but this isn't for the the faint of heart. Like you're going in to court against the government almost like three or four strokes down, maybe even more. And you have to make up territory just, just because of the subject matter. And the government gets, gets heaps of deference, especially in this area. And I don't, personally, I don't think it's warranted. I think that that the federal judiciary should actually start taking a closer look at these things. And I don't think that they have in in a lot of cases. And I think it's created a lot of bad law. Um, I think that's a constant one consequence of the war on drugs. And, but it's, it's our job as advocates to find a better way to frame this, to, to get to, you know, it's, 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 it's not, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there, but it's, it's, it's difficult. That's, that's all I'll say. No, and that makes sense. And um, kind of going back to uh, the marketing um, end of it, I, I think you know a lot of people don't want to get pigeonholed into a certain practice area, which is kind of what I think w- what you talked about a little bit, which is you know you you're in this area, but then you're also a, a broader litigator, patent litigator. How do you and how does your firm go about kind of? threading that needle where they don't want to just pigeonhole you as, you know, a psychedelics cannabis lawyer, uh, but they, you know, as, so you can get other clients other than that, other patent clients, other, you know, commercial litigation cases. What, what is kind of the, the marketing strategy that, that we can follow as kind of an example there? Yeah. I mean, I think that would, that, that might be more of a question for, um, for, for our marketing team, um, for I can tell you what I've observed, which is, you know, my 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 bio. I obviously 
put my controlled substances expertise forward. That's, that's work I want to continue to get and continue to do. But it's it's not it's not the only thing there. You know, I'm I'm honored that I get get nominated to be sort of a top cannabis lawyer. I certainly consider myself as such, but I'm also honored to be nominated as a top IP lawyer. Um, I was a top IP lawyer, a young young lawyer, whatnot before I was a top cannabis lawyer. So, you know, I think it's, it's, it's really just some like the simple things. Um, but again, you, maybe that's a question for, for our marketing team, but I think it's just kind of how you hold yourself out to the world. And it's, I don't hold myself out as a cannabis and psychedelics lawyer exclusively. And I certainly continue to go to IP conferences. I continue to work on IP cases. It's, it's just it's kind of minding the way you hold yourself out to the world and what you're doing on a daily basis. Got it. And and I I think you mentioned when you first started that this whole adventure began when you went to uh, South, South by Southwest. Um, was that kind of a, a personal uh, trip, or did you intend to to make contacts in this specific area? The the answer to that question is I did not go to South by Southwest expecting to have this meeting. I didn't go for the, at the time it was called the can of business track. Now there's the psychedelics track. I just kind of went because I wanted to have fun. I'd been living in Texas for a few years and I hadn't gone to South by Southwest before. And I made you know, a number of connections and it was fun, but I, I, obviously this was the most consequential thing. Um, what I do now, you know, I, I, I write, I think everyone, I would hesitate for others to follow my path and do the things I'm doing you know, I write, for instance, now I write a newsletter, it's got a bunch of subscribers, but I didn't start writing that to get business. Truthfully, I started writing because I just wanted to write. As it turns out, it's a good way to make contacts and to get known and to, you know, pick up business. But and and that's kind of, I, I would sort of talk on a more general basis, which is like, focus on on activities that you want to do that could help you build connections and relationships. And um, that could be writing, it could be going to conferences and, and it could be it could be any number of things. It, there's really, you know, there's no, I think, magic formula. Sa- sadly, I think, you know, <laughs> how to get business is something you could probably talk to a senior partner all the way down to junior partners and, you know, the most junior partners, which would be me. And I don't think anyone's got a great answer to that. I, I certainly think that, following uh, your passion and going to events that you enjoy going to and 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 meeting people and making connections that's certainly something that I think we I mean we've had a uh, some business development consultants on this show in the past and and they would tell you the same thing so I I, I think you know it's definitely maybe not exactly the same track um, as, as you as you sort of de- developed your your practice but I think it's definitely something that uh, we can glean um, some you know very general uh, principles uh, for in that you know if you want to if you're interested in writing then you should write and write about things that you want because if you don't write about things that you like and you don't go to events that you like you're not going to come across as passionate about the subject and people aren't going to want to get to know you so and i would be remiss if i didn't add sort of this note which i think is really important you know before i even joined yetter coleman i was talking to um i was working marshall and I, i was actually talking to um uh, magistrate Judge Payne, who I worked for briefly when I was in Marshall, because I was looking for jobs and I was trying to figure out where I wanted to go. And I, c- I couldn't figure it out. I was interviewing around and 
ultimate, he, he said something to me that really kind of resonated, which was just, just focus on your skills, become, if you want to be a lawyer, just develop, go to the place where you think you're going to develop the best lawyer skills. There are a number of reasons why I went to Yetter Coleman, but that, that was one of them, which was, I thought that this was going to be a great place to develop my skills because in the end, and, and the reason I, I think that's, that's really great advice is in the end, clients are hiring lawyers and they want someone who's skilled. If you're not as skilled, they might not pay as much. Uh, if you're more skilled, they'll, they'll pay more. But at the end of the day, that, that is what you have to offer to a client. And, you know, I, I do take paid representations now, but that's because I spent a couple of years with pro bono and developing my skills. And I think that that really is, is what I would focus on. Honestly, that that's just kind of my approach to this, which is I, I just want to be the best lawyer out there for this job. And, and when I tell you that I want to be confident that I'm right. And I, and I do believe that on the controlled substances issues, I'm the best lawyer out there right now because I've been doing this now and I spend and, and the writing I, that I use that time and I'm developing certain skills. And so I, I think that ultimately I, I would just, if anyone's listening to this and wanting my advice and it's like, well, what do I do for the next two, three years? I think it's just as simple as finding a place where you can develop your skills or doing activities where you can develop your skills. It'll make the sort of the next step of like, you know, why should you hire me that much easier? Well, excellent. I, I think that's a great place to leave it right there. Matt Zorn, thank you so much for being on the show today. All right. Thank you very much. And now it's time for our quick tip from the ABA litigation section. I'm pleased to welcome back Latasha Ellis on the show. Latasha is a litigator in the Washington, D.C. office of Hunt and Andrews Kurth, focusing on insurance coverage cases. Welcome back to the show, Latasha. Hi, Dave. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Well, I understand you're going to talk about insurance and indemnification. And what's your quick tip for today? So last month, Daryl Wilson provided some tips about indemnification provisions in third-party contracts as a way to actually avoid litigation. And I'd like to just expand on that and provide a couple of tips about insurance provisions and third-party contracts and how they interact with indemnification provisions. So insurance and indemnification clauses are fundamental to a well-drafted contract. And as I mentioned, can help avoid litigation. The indemnification provisions, which Daryl talked about last week, they identify the parties that must pay the damages. But the insurance provisions, they actually support the promise uh, or promises that are made in the indemnification provisions by essentially providing the financial resources for the indemnification that may result from a loss. So it really helps the indemnifier deliver on their promise to indemnify. So in that regard, and obviously I'm biased because insurance is my practice area, insurance provisions are some of the most important provisions in third-party contracts. So to effectively manage contractual risk, organizations must continually review and improve their third-party contract language. Um, and that, again, includes the alignment of insurance policy terms with the contractual obligations related to insurance. Again, this is probably the easiest way to avoid litigation. I cannot tell you how many clients I have represented um, that are in disputes with third parties because they did not have an indemnification provision or the indemnification provision um, was not clear and there was no insurance requirements to help them deliver on that promise. 
So I could talk about this for a very long time, but obviously for the purposes of our episode today, I'm just going to highlight a couple quick tips to consider when reviewing insurance provisions in third-party contracts. So the first tip is to review and identify where the risk can be transferred to a third party. Certainly you have your indemnification provision or hold harmless provision, but in order again to help that indemnifier deliver on the promise, you have to consider where the risk can be transferred. And so you may want to consider if we have a company and we hire a contractor to remove snow and ice. The contract should require that snow removal company to carry a certain amount of insurance in case someone slips or falls so that we are not on the hook to pay any claims in the event someone slips or falls. So that's one way that we could transfer risk in that contract. The second tip is to review and obtain optimal contract language when assuming the risk. Um, And again, I can just share from my experience that I see so many contracts where a third party has agreed to a ridiculous amount of insurance that they are supposed to carry in order to be in compliance with the contract. They know that they, they can't afford that level of insurance, they also probably can't even get approved by an insurance company for that high level of insurance. But instead of trying to negotiate optimal contract language at a realistic level of insurance, the third party typically signs it and then there's some sort of a loss and they're not in compliance with the contract. That scenario can be completely avoided if there's just some sort of comprehensive risk assessment or benchmarking or some sort of analytics that a broker could probably do for little, um, if no fee at all, to essentially assess the risk and say, for just using our example again, the contractor to remove snow and ice based on the type of work you're going to be doing, the appropriate amount of insurance that you should carry is X, Y, and Z. So instead of $25 million that maybe the business wants the third party to carry and to agree to carry in that contract, the broker can help benchmark that risk and say, actually, you probably need $250,000 of insurance. That enables the third party to actually get the amount of insurance that they need and can afford. And again, it transfers the risk from the business to the third party. So reviewing and obtaining optimal contract language when assuming the risk is also very important. For my third tip, I'd like to incorporate some important insurance concepts into a bit of a hypothetical to hopefully help um, everyone understand just how the insurance works with the indemnification provisions. So I'll go back to our company and we're hiring this contractor to remove snow and ice. Our contract is going to require the snow removal company to carry general liability insurance. So During the winter, a customer falls and let's say the customer slips and on the ice and is on our property. Naturally, the customer sues us. And we, of course, tender that claim to the snow removal contractor. Because if you remember, our contract required that they and carried a certain amount of insurance. The contractor submits that claim to their insurance company. But unfortunately, the insurance company denies the claim because even though our contract required insurance, we did not have 
and indemnification and defense provision in the contract. So we missed last month's podcast episode and did not listen to Daryl and have the appropriate indemnification provision in our contract. So that essentially means that we effectively have to tender that claim to our insurance company. And we have a super high deductible that we maybe a hundred thousand dollars, let's say. So at minimum, we're going to be on the hook for a hundred thousand dollars. So that scenario could have easily been avoided by a couple of things. Obviously having the indemnification and hold harmless provision in our contract. We could also have had an additional insured provision in our contract that required the contractor to name our company as an additional insured on their policy. And that would allow us to have direct rights and access to their insurance and the opportunity for legal defense from their policy because this customer sued us. We could have also required in, again, in our third-party contract that the insurance be primary and on a non-contributory basis which is just a fancy way of saying that the third party's contractor's insurance is going to kick in first and our insurance will not be triggered until their insurance policy is exhausted. So those are just some a few simple things that we could have done to not have to accept the risk that essentially we now have to accept because our contractor did not properly remove snow from our property. So Contract liability can easily be avoided by implementing certain processes and procedures with some forethought to the risk that are involved and putting the safeguards, such as the indemnification provisions that Daryl spoke about last month, but also coupling those with the insurance provisions. Having those things in place can really help avoid contractual liability from third parties. Well, that's great, Uh, Latasha. Thanks so much for sharing your expertise on the show today. No problem. Thanks for having me. Well, that's all we have for our show today, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's episode. If you have comments or a question you'd like for me to answer in an upcoming show, you can email me at dscrivenyoung, without the hyphen, at gmail.com, and connect with me on social. I'm at AttorneyDSY on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also connect with the ABA litigation section on those platforms as well. But as much as I'd like to connect with you online, nothing beats meeting in person at one of our litigation section events. So please make plans to join us at the Insurance Coverage Litigation Committee CLE Seminar in Tucson, March 1st through the 4th. At the seminar, you'll learn about the very latest developments in insurance law from leading lawyers and insurance professionals. This year's meeting will feature the same high-quality programming that has attracted insurance practitioners from all over the United States and other parts of the globe for over 30 years. To find out more and for registration information, please go to ambar.org slash litigationinsurance. If you like the show, please help spread the word by sharing a link to this episode with a friend or through a post on social and invite others to join the show and community. If you want to leave a review over at Apple Podcasts, it's incredibly helpful. Even a quick rating at Spotify Podcasts, it's super helpful as well. And finally, I'm going to quickly thank some folks who make this show possible. Thanks to Michelle Oberts, who's on staff with the litigation section for her help, as well as our fabulous producer, Rich Rivera. Thank you, Rich, for all of your hard work. And thanks also goes out to my fellow co-chairs of the litigation section's audio content committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True. Thank you to the audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.